Hey, welcome to Shtetl. Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Basia Schechter. She is the woman behind the psychedelic, trans-Hasidic, Mizrahi-influenced New York-based band Pharaoh's Daughter. Also, in honor of Tu Bishvat, the Jewish New Year for the Trees, we're going to talk with legendary Canadian environmental activist Zipora Berman. What do sexy underwear and Canada's forests have in common? Stay tuned to find out. And to download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave, you can go to shtetlmontreal.com. And you believe in your prophet, and you believe in your pope, and you believe in your guru, and I believe and hope that you believe, that I believe that you believe in love. Cause I believe in anything, if I believe that you believe in love. I believe... We're here on Shtetl on the Shortwave on this amazing day in February, everybody's favorite month of all time. I hope people out there are really living it up. And it's beautiful here in Montreal, actually. An incredible snow flurry is happening outside the windows here at CKUT. So there's something to feel blessed about. And especially because there's some very exciting music happening in Montreal this weekend. We are going to be treated to the amazing band Pharaoh's Daughter. Tomorrow night, they're going to be playing at Synagogue Dorche Emmet. So if you haven't gone to synagogue in a while, this is a great reason to go. We're going to be hearing from Basia Schechter today. She is the very lively and very lovely and talented musician. She plays the oud, she sings, and plays many other instruments. Um, she is the, uh, the genius behind Pharaoh's daughter, and she's accompanied by some incredible musicians who are going to be with her tomorrow night, including Avi Fox Rosen. So check them out. And also on today's show, we're going to be honoring the Jewish holiday for the trees. It's hard to conceptualize that this is the new year for the trees when I look outside the window and see the beautiful snow. But it's the new year for the trees, I guess, you know, depends where you are in the world. It makes it makes sense um, on different levels, maybe on a spiritual level. It makes sense here, too. And I hope it does. February, the time for renewal. Um, so we're going to be talking to a very legendary Canadian activist. Her name is Zipporah Berman, and she has a new memoir called This Crazy Time. She was named by Utney Reader as one of the 50 people who are changing our world today. She is an incredible woman and has waged many campaigns that have uh, focused on saving Canada's and the world's forests. And right now she is the co-director of Greenpeace's International Global Climate and Energy Program. So we're going to hear an interview that Mark Brooks, who hosts a radio show in Ottawa called Earth Gage, did for Shtetl in honor of Tubi Shvat, and that's going to be on the second half of the show. But first, let's hear from Basia. I asked her why it was that she named her band Pharaoh's Daughter. 
Pharaoh's daughter um, in the Bible, um, after the decree that all boys should be thrown into the river or made into mortar for the pyramids, she saw a baby floating into the river and she decided to take the baby in. She has probably suspected that this was an Israelite child. And so she saved Moses and she was given the name in later commentary, um, Bithya, which means Basia, which is daughter of God. And... Um, for recognizing a higher power than her father. And that is my name. And also Pharaoh's daughter has the Mediterranean element, the Middle Eastern element. I felt like that's already, and also it was way better than the original band I had, which was called Temporarily Anonymous, which could only last for so long. Temporarily Anonymous. I, I love it. I love it. So that was Basia Schechter. And uh, we're going to hear more about her um, throughout the show. And she has a very interesting life story. She came from a very orthodox community, which she she later left. But before we hear about her, I wanted to to talk to her a little bit about um, her new album. It's called Songs of Wonder. And it's based on the poetry of the iconic Jewish figure, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He is a philosopher and an activist. And I asked Basia some questions about that. Before we do get to hearing about that, I wanted you to hear a little bit of her music. This is a song off of one of her older albums called Haran. And the song is called Samai. It's, uh, it's influenced by the Arabic music tradition. So take a listen and we'll be back to hear about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Thank you. 
right thing for you. TKUT 90.3 This next clip that we're going to hear is about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and I asked Basia if she could tell us a little bit about the man and why she found him so influential. He, uh, he grew up, um, he was born 1907 in Warsaw for, from a very Hasidish family. Um, he was an Eloy, which is somebody who's very brilliant, like somebody who can memorize Torah. And by the, by the bar mitzvah age, he can recite Talmud and Kabbalah. And, and he wrote his own commentary from a very young age. And so he was really being prepped for rabbinic position. His father had been a rabbi. And, but he was being prepared for the rabbinate as well, but from the Hasidic perspective. He um, also was, as much as he loved the rabbinic side of things, he also really liked literature. So he became interested in secular, the secular world. I like him because he was a bridge between two worlds, between the old Hasidic world and the secular, philosophical, spiritual, self-determining world. And um, I felt connected to that process as well as somebody who did something similar. When he was really sick, he said he's not really upset or afraid to die. He's uh, really feel like he lived well, and he feels like the thing that he said in his poem, like the in, in his poetry book, when it was released in 1926. That I did not ask for success, I asked for wonder, and you gave it to me, addressed to God. The other thing is, right before he actually passed, was he said that he wanted to pass over the message that there's meaning beyond absurdity, and that there's um, that every word has power, every every deed has meaning, and to make life a work of art. And his work as a civil rights activist, was that also something that was inspirational for you? Very inspirational. Um, he has a song called My Song, where he says he wants to be like a slave to the people who need, his, need him. He wants to be of use. He wants... And his major philosophy in life is that you should repair the world. You should be somebody who makes a difference. If you had to recommend one book for people to read of his writing, which one would you choose? Of his writing himself, I would, I think it's really great to start with the Sabbath. It's a really beautiful, beautifully, simply, profoundly written book. But I think if you want to read the gems of his wisdom as called by somebody else. I, um, I think I Asked for Wonder is the name of the book. Is uh, It's just a wonderful compilation of his mystical gems. Like I, I think in, the, in that book I can hear resonances of, of like Rumi. Uh, like 
Sufi poetry. Do you have to be religious or religious-minded to understand his, his writing and his words? Not at all. I think he was a universalist. I think, you know, there was an aspect of his work that addressed the Jewish experience, but I think he was really talking about being in a certain state of awe and wonder and connectivity with the world and being responsible. Like, he was a civil... I mean, he walked with Martin Luther King. I mean, he was interested and deeply committed to changing things that were wrong in the world. So that was Basia Schechter talking about Abraham Joshua Heschel and her whole album Songs of Wonder uh, is based on his poetry. And the song that we were listening to in the background there is track six off the album From Your Hands. And we're going to hear one more song. And it's a beautiful one called Mein Siegel, My Seal from Songs of Wonder by Pharaoh's Daughter. Take a listen.
So that was Pharaoh's Daughter off of their new album, Songs of Wonder. And um, Basia Schachter is is really a special woman. And she gave a whole talk yesterday at McGill. And it was fascinating, her her personal story and, and as well her experience traveling through the world and and all the countries she's been to have really influenced the music that she's done uh from from listening to all her cds i think songs of wonder is a little bit of a departure from from the usual pharaoh's daughter music uh which is more uh has more of like an arabic turkish um middle eastern influence i find than songs of wonder which is also very beautiful just a little bit different so i think there's a lot of diversity in in the music and i'm pretty sure you can expect to to see that tomorrow night uh, at the concert. If you want to get tickets, you can call 514-486-9400. And um, I think they're $20 for, for the regular admission and $10 for students. And I'm sure there's some left. So give them a call over there at Synagogue Dorche Emmet. And Basia had mentioned in the clip um, with Abraham Joshua Heschel, where she was talking about why he was an influence on her, that she could relate to him because they had done similar things, had left the ultra-Orthodox or world that they had come from and had engaged in the, the secular world and had gone out of uh, the community that they were from. And this next clip, she talks a little bit about that community, where she's from, and how it did in fact, influence her music. So take a listen. Uh, take a listen to this. It's it's kind of funny. There's some funny memories in here. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and and where you're from? Um, the community I grew up in was Hasidic. My family was more ultra orthodox. It was Borough Park, and um, I went to school in a base Yaakov, and it was a, it was pretty much a community of ultra orthodox and Hasidic people, mostly Hasidic. And, you know, on Shabbos, you wouldn't see really a car. Everybody would be wearing Shabbos dresses and um, walking in the streets, you know, from shul to shul. This, this is one memory I have that's like so particular to growing up in Borough Park that it's like you can't even explain it almost. Something that happened on, on, on Chag, like uh, on either Sukkot or Shavuos, and it was something called, like, the nuts. Like, we would take hazelnuts, and we'd go to the base Yaakov, right? It was on 14th Street and 46th Street. And they would have, like, if you were a nut dealer, you would actually create these games where you like, hit the nut for three nuts. Hit this, you know, throw this nut into a, into a, into a, into a, a pot and then get ten nuts, you know? So all these games to, like, do something with a nut and get more nuts. And... And it's just such a bizarre memory. It's like that only happens in Borough Park. I mean, on holiday. I think that I can't imagine there was anybody anywhere else. That's a, that's a very strong memory for me from childhood. Of like people playing games on the streets with nuts. On on holidays, on days where you can't actually do anything else. Like you're allowed. To, it's it's the inter, it's the it's not Shabbos. It was never Shabbos because you can't carry on Shabbos. But it was all like the Yuntif holidays that they had the game of nuts. I don't know if it was called nuts. Maybe it was called nuts. I want to go play nuts. And it was mostly hazelnuts. Hit the nut. I remember, hit the nut for three nuts. So it was like a festive vibe in the community? It was very competitive. I don't think it was festive at all. I think we were all very, very, very focused on getting more nuts. And so uh, I think we were all agitated. 
The other, the other memory I have is like um, before holidays, all schools, we always raised money for tzedakah. So we all had these like pushkas, which is like a charity box. And we would go to the mikvah, which is the uh, ritual bathhouses. And because that's where they would all feel like they should give tzedakah charity right after they dunk. So this is the image of like tons of yeshiva kids congregating, crowding out all the people who are leaving the mikvah with pushkas. Like, push, you know, raising money for this, raising money for this. And we would all like shake our pushkas in front of... The truth is that all of us little kids, we would all get, like, if we would collect a certain amount of money, then we'd get, like, Connect Four or Mastermind or Othello, like, these games that we would win if we would collect more tzedakah. So it was also very competitive. I think it was, like, very competitive Judaism. I remember, like, growing up, who could get more nuts? Who could collect more tzedakah? It's, like, it's a very... Uh, maybe, just, maybe just I was competitive. In my family, I was an Ashkenazi family, and because, yes, divorce does happen in the ultra-Orthodox world, my family was a divorced family. My father remarried a woman whose previous husband had been Syrian, so her eight kids from the previous marriage were actually Syrian, uh, had a Syrian um, cultural background, and um, their last name was Aboud, and mine is Shechter, so we were the Shechter Aboud family. And they used, they sang a lot of songs in the Sephardic accent, like when they sang Mipiel, we sing Mipiel, Mipiel, and they sang like that. So we had uh, both elements in our family. Would you say that was the beginning of uh, your interest in Sephardic music? At the time, I didn't know I was, well, you know, partly yes. I had also one brother at the time who was a drummer, and he introduced me to the Piamentas, which was a Sephardic band, um, Israeli-based, and like he, the guitar player was like the Jimi Hendrix of like Sephardic music. My brother taught me how to play drums to his music, so I got interested into that sound with his, uh, with him teaching me the Pimentas music. And my father was interested in Israeli music, which had a little bit of Sephardic song, you know, elements in it too. got to learn a little bit about uh, Borough Park there and uh, the Hazelnut game. It sounds, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like it's a fascinating community to grow up in. And uh, it's cool to imagine um, Basia's families coming together, the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic families and, and all the different ways that uh, I loved hearing her uh, imitate her Sephardic uh, brothers and sisters singing um, at, the, at the table. Uh, if anybody out there wants to invite me to their Sephardic Shabbat dinner, it's Tamara at shtetlmontreal.com. Okay. <laughs> um, especially if you don't live in Montreal, like if you live in Morocco or I'm 
dying to come to your Shabbat dinner. But even if you do live in Montreal, I would love to come too. So in this next clip, Basia sort of redesigns the Birthright Israel trip. Take a listen. If you had to create a pilgrimage for the uninitiated Jew to introduce them to Jewish arts and culture and thought and religion, what would be some of the stops along the way, either places or people they would have to meet or concerts they would have to go to? What would be some stops on the Basia Schechter Jewish pilgrimage tour? Ooh, okay. I think uh, I like international travel. So partly I would do a diaspora um, journey where we would go to like Persia, you know, we go to Iran because that was the first exile. And then we go to Babylonia. So we would trace all the um, all the places that Israelites, the Jews, lived in uh, in a cultural way throughout the last 2,500 years. And um, then we would go to different, um, we would go to different, you know, I'm more of a musician, so I know more about that. So we would go to different music festivals. We would go to Ashkenazi Klezmer festivals. We would go to Sephardic music festivals. We would go to Cantoria. We would go to synagogues and listen to, like, the best cantors and hear that. Um, we would go to jazz clubs, downtown jazz music scene, and hear John Zorn's music. Let's see. Um, they would expose them also to things. My influence is, even if it has nothing to do with the Jewish experience, which is I would, we would go to Mali and Egypt, for sure, because those are the places, and Sudan, where some of the music that I like the most is there, and also India. So we would go to Sudan on this Jewish pilgrimage tour? Yeah, this <laughs> forget birthrights. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, we would because, well, if we're going to look at Jewish music from my perspective, um, since my influences are from these countries, mm-hmm. um, I would I would take everybody there and just yeah, why not? Let's go down the Nile. Why not? How would you describe the Jewish music world today? What's happening in the world of Jewish contemporary music right now? I think that it's divided a lot between like Israel, where Jewish, where you're Jewish by de facto, pretty much, unless you're from the immigrant culture. So there's a lot of amazing things happening musically there, like a lot of spiritual music. People are becoming more in touch with their Judaism. So it's becoming a country that's getting more in touch with their biblical um, religious past. So there's a whole piyut movement, which is these poetries, these old ancient um, Sephardic poems that are set to music. And so there's a whole revival of putting all these poems on a website and performing them and transmitting them. There are a lot of people from different um, like uh, communities, like from the Yemen community, from the Ethiopian community, from Russian community. All these cultures are also bringing enormous cultural, musical specificity, like Yemen blues, for example, is bringing in a Yemen um, experience, you know, in an Israeli context and a world music context. Idan Reichel uses the Ethiopian music experience, you know, Ethiopian background, Israeli music background. So there's so much, a lot happening in Israel with um, immigrant cultures and fusing that with Jew- Judaic themes and experience. In America, I think people are in like. You know, people who are connecting to their Judaism through their music are doing it through the musical experiences that they like. So people who are doing the hard, there are people doing hard rock Jewish music or punk Jewish music or Sephardic Jewish music, like Spanish Ladino Jewish music or, you know, few, you know, a mixture of everything music. That's kind of like me sort of, you know, or or punk gypsy Jewish music or, you know, experimental jazz Jewish music. So everybody's kind of bringing their own interests and connecting it with their own Jewish experience. Do you have a favorite North American Jewish band? For, um, 
favorite. Okay. I, I love everybody. I love. I, I think I learn from all the artists. I, I get, I'm very inspired by so many. You know, I am inspired by Regina Spector is one of my favorite artists as an artist. I love what she does, and I love Leonard Cohen, and I love. Um, and I love Iva Voy, which is more from England, like what they did. I love Yudan Reichel. I love um, Yemen Blues. I love the work that Golem does. And I like, you know, there's so much amazing. I love David. I, I, don't, I love Daniel Kahn. I love his work. And if you mention more people, I know I'll love them too. <laughs> She's clearly a very loving woman and has a great appreciation for all types of music the whole world over. And if you happen to be listening to Shtetl on the Shortwave on podcast or on your computer, I say pause and rewind and write down all the musicians that she mentioned and go check them out and get a real uh, 101 on Jewish music today. She she named a lot of great bands and we are going to actually take a listen to one of them right now. This is uh, Eden Reichel and his uh, music has an Ethiopian influence. The song is called Ayale Ayale and we're going to be back on Shtetl on the shortwave uh, with Sapora Berman and getting into the whole to be shvat side of the show. So take a listen. King of Israel, King of Kings, Holy Zion, Jabless. One love, one heart. Ayala, ayala, sirawale, sirawale. Ayala, gonda, shirinevale, beloina, pare. Ayala, ayala, sirawale, I'm a little bit of 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 a little
I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. Information to grow the brain. So we're back on Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM. And uh, hey, even February isn't so bad when you get to listen to Ida and Reichel Project. That was a beautiful song, Ayale, Ayale. And uh, if you want to check out more uh, music from Pharaoh's Daughter, you can go to pharaohsdaughter.com and find out about all her all her CDs um, that are available there. So to be shot, the new year for the trees, I called up my friend Mark Brooks uh, in Ottawa, who does a radio show called Earth Gauge, all about the environment. And he really goes into detail in his show. And he's a great journalist. Um, And uh, I asked him, hey, you want to do an interview with this incredible Canadian environmental activist for the Jewish New Year of the Trees. He's not Jewish, and uh, he didn't know exactly what I was talking about, but he immediately said, of course, why not? He's actually met uh, Zipporah Berman at a protest in BC a couple of years ago, and um, he did a great job interviewing her, and you can find out uh, more about Zipporah Berman. I think he's going to post the full interview that he did with her uh, at his website, um, earthgauge.wordpress.com, and uh, I'm very excited to play this, uh, this interview for you. Zipporah Berman is, she's the queen of the Canadian forests and she's done a lot to save Canada's forests and the world's forests. And she is now working with Greenpeace. And like I had mentioned earlier, she was named by Utney as one of the 50 visionaries that is changing our world today, along with many, many other accolades. Um, So in this clip, we're going to hear about why she became an environmentalist and why that that call to her as as her life's work. I was drawn to forest work, um, you know, in large part because it was the work of my heart. I fell in love with Canada's old growth forest and I was devastated in my early 20s to realize how quickly uh, we were logging them. I mean, at the, at the time, 1993, when I started getting involved in these issues, we were logging, you know, about a, a, a hectare of, of forest every every um, uh, every 11 seconds. <laughs> you know, it was some of the fastest logging in the world and shipping it out, you know, minimally processed. And And, you know, that was kind of... So that was really the work of my heart. And then um, about, you know, probably around 2006, 2007, a, a report came across my desk on the impacts of beetle infestations in British Columbia's old-growth forest and fires in the Canadian boreal across the country. And, um, and I had remembered reading a report just a week before on how much of the Amazon was under threat because of increased fires. And it just hit me, you know, that I was watching uh, the forest that I'd spent my entire adult life trying to protect uh, were going up in smoke or being eaten by bugs, primarily because of climate change. And I just, it was a, it was a huge revelation for me. And I decided, look, I have to be willing to change what I do. You know, I, I, all I work on is forests and the trade of wooden paper products. But really, if it's fossil fuels and our dependence on oil and, and coal and other dangerous um, and dirty fuels that is, that is destroying our forests, I need to actually think about shifting my work. And so I, I went to the United Nations Climate Change Conference that year um, in Bali. I was asked to speak there. And 
And I had another tipping point moment that I describe in the book where I was sitting and I listen, listening to the Secretary General of the United Nations open the climate change conference and he said, um, we either reach a strong agreement globally to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions or we are dooming humanity to oblivion. Wow. I, I've said far less radical things and be yeah. called, been called everything from, you know, an enemy of the state to a hysterical, you know, nature worshiper. This was the Secretary General of the United Nations, and I realized that climate change has become not just an environmental issue, but in fact the moral and economic challenge of our age. say that um, I, along with several others, um, with many others uh, in the movement, uh, kind of matured our thinking. Um, and what I mean by that is that what we started realizing is it's not good enough to say no. You know, we have to be willing to work on solutions, because if we're not, um, then that's not campaigning, it's just complaining. We have to be willing to as equally and as forcefully say yes to things and try and build the world that we want to live in as much as oppose things. And and so what does that mean? That means often sitting down with government and industry and negotiating solutions because, A, they have the power to make the changes that we want to see made, whether it's, you know, um, uh, you know stopping the Enbridge pipeline, for example, in Canada, or, 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 or uh, stopping new permits on the tar sands, uh, or whether it's protecting the Great Bear Rainforest. We can't do it on our own. And they often have, the industry and government have the knowledge that we need. But that, I'm not saying, therefore, that the blockades and the protests are wrong. Because, in fact, I think we need them today more than we ever did. What I am saying is that we need to do both. We need to protest. We need to capture the attention of decision makers. And then once we have it and we have enough power as a result of our external campaigns, we need to be willing to sit down and negotiate solutions. Mm -hmm. And you focused on targeting companies and the consumer end, consumer boycotts and, and that kind of thing, certainly with your forest campaigns. Is that what Greenpeace wants to do in, with climate change as well? I mean, how do you negotiate climate change with oil companies who have obvious vested interests and, and we don't have the alternatives right now? Well, right now, I don't see a clear pathway, honestly, to negotiating uh, w with oil companies. Um, but you can negotiate with their customers and you can affect demand and you can affect price. So um, let me just describe quickly uh, one of the campaigns that I worked on this year um, was a campaign against Facebook on Facebook. <laughs> mm -hmm. We actually had 700,000 people um, join the campaign in 14 countries to try and convince Facebook to demand renewable energy. And uh, we won that campaign in December. Facebook committed, they were one of the first IT companies in the world to commit to a preference in their siting policies for data centers, which are like these big computer farms that are huge energy hogs. And now Facebook is committed to siting their new data centers where they can be fed by renewable energy. The reason that's important is that, first of all, the cloud, uh, the IT companies are the fastest growing consumers of electricity in the world. But also they have enormous power as consumers to turn around to a government or utility and say, look, I I'm not going to build here. I'm not going to employ people. I'm not going to put my money into your in, into your economy unless you can, can unless you can provide renewable energy. And this will affect decisions made by governments and corporations. So what we're trying to do is 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 build the demand um, uh, and um, and also affect the financing because if huge companies like Facebook and Google and the telecoms company that we're campaigning against in India, Airtel, if they demand renewable energy and if they invest in renewable energy, that can affect the price. Uh, of renewable energy as it compares. 
um, to oil or coal. Mm-hmm. And so that, those, are, those are some of the campaigns we're working on internationally. So we campaign against um, the uh, energy infrastructure, building out more energy infrastructure that's hurting us, that's hurting our economy, that's hurting our climate, that's going to hurt our kids, like the tar sands, like coal plants in India, the U.S. coal plant being built in Alberta. And, but we also campaign for the demand of renewable energy and the build-out of the solution. That was uh, the first part of Mark Brooks' interview with Tora Berman for the Tubi Shvat special, Shtetl on the Shortwave. And uh, she's a very inspiring woman, Sapora, and I hope you'll stay tuned for the second part of the interview where we find out finally what sexy underwear and Canada's forests have in common. So don't go away. You're listening to Shtetl on the Shortwave. And I thought we would just hear a little bit from a guy who's from BC, where Sapora Berman waged some of her uh, biggest campaigns against logging. This is Jeff Berner, and he is also an activist in his own right. Sapora uh, was threatened with many years in jail, many fines for, for her work. And uh, I thought it would be fun to play this and uh, it's called Jail. So take a listen. Jeff Berner. I am going to jail, jail, jail. I am going to jail to get a new pair of shoes. Guard the light, my spokes for me. Spokes for me, spokes for me. Guard the light, my spokes for me. When I go in there.
So that was actually a dedication to Luna on her fourth birthday. And uh, I'm going to jail. Believe it or not, it's one of her favorite songs. So uh, happy birthday, Luna. And we are going to hear one more clip of Tsipora Berman, where she talks about two of her biggest campaigns. I don't know if the if one of them is her biggest. She she waged a campaign against uh, lingerie giant Victoria's Secret. And we're going to hear about that and also about a campaign that she did at her synagogue in London, Ontario when she was young that uh, she wasn't arrested for. She didn't go to jail, but it sounds like she was pretty successful. So take a listen. This is Zipporah Berman. So one of the campaigns I did want to ask you about was the famous Victoria Secret campaign that you were involved with with uh, Forest Ethics. This is Victoria has a dirty secret. You know, you ran a, an ad in the New York Times, and it seems to have been a fairly successful campaign. But it was it was very high profile, and there's a lot of money spent on on running advertising. How did you make that decision to to take that kind of risk? And uh, do you think it was effective in the end? Oh, it was hugely effective, but it was a really scary decision. I mean, we so we found out that Victoria's Secret was making a million catalogs a day, primarily from Canada's old growth forests. And we went and talked to them. We said, look, you know, you could be using recycled paper. You could be using paper that's certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, which is more selective logging. We'd like to help you source that paper. And then, you know, you could tell the companies and the government that you're not buying this other paper because of your concerns about caribou and Canada's old growth forests, and that would help us protect those forests. And they basically said, look, this is not our problem. We just buy the cheapest paper. We're not interested. And so we launched a campaign against them. And, and you know, we, had, we didn't have a lot of money. And we basically took the majority of the money that we had and ran one ad in the New York Times. And it was a big risk. Um, but we made the ad as kind of funny and controversial as we could in the hopes that this would really, you know, it was a brand jam exercise. We were trying to really jam their brand, trying to make them care um, and so we ran a full-page ad with a woman uh, wearing lingerie holding a chainsaw that said Victoria's got a dirty secret, and then a, you know a couple of paragraphs about the problem and a link to our website, and it went viral. It was everywhere. I mean, lingerie, trees, logging, women in lingerie with chainsaws. It was just too weird, too funny, and um, <laughs> and it was you know we really worked at making it um, uh, a brand gem for Victoria's Secret. I mean, to the point where we were actually having conversations in house about all the different people that we had taken pictures of going. No, well, she's not, you know, we ended up choosing the model that we did because she was hot, but just not quite hot enough to be Victoria's <laughs> Secret. And later, when I was in negotiations with senior management, they were like, that was one of the things that really, really got to them. Their brand was associated with not quite, you know, the right photo. She wouldn't quite cut and, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact is that um, our estimations are that we received millions and millions of dollars, literally, of coverage. I mean, USA Today re-ran the ad in full. And today, you know, in a controversial ad, it was showing up on CNN. It was showing up on ABC TV, NBC. It was, you know, across North America. And then it hit internationally. And um, and so we spent, I think it was at the time, $30,000, which was um, the majority of our budget on mm. one de- one ad. And that was hard for us. That, that could have employed a full-time organizer well, exactly, right, for yeah. a year. Yeah. And, and it was scary. And But the result is that um, we received literally, it was a, it ended up being a multi-million dollar ad campaign off $30,000. Mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit here. The, the Jewish holiday to be Shabbat is coming up next week. Ecological organizations in Israel and the diaspora have adopted the holiday to further environmental awareness programs. I'm wondering uh, if you celebrate to be Shabbat and, and if it, um, which is known as the New Year of the Trees, and if it has any significance for you as an environmentalist. I, I definitely did um, uh, growing up, and, and this year I'll be speaking here in Vancouver um, uh, at the Hillel Group um, at UBC in honor of, uh, of Tubishvat. 
you know, for me, it's my world coming together. You know, I was brought up in a conservative synagogue in, in London, Ontario, and I think part of the reason I ended up doing this work is because, you know, volunteering and engaging in my community and tzedakah, you know, charity, raising money uh, for charity is a huge part of who I am. And I, I grew up in a very strong and, and tight-knit Jewish community, and we celebrated, you know, Tubishvat and environmental values and community values. Uh, you know, just were a huge part of my life. And so, and so I, I'm going to be definitely talking to my kids uh, about the meaning of Tubishvat, and I think it's really uh, fabulous that being actually, I think, a, a real renaissance of focus on Tubishvat and environmental awareness around the world in, in Jewish communities. And, uh, you know, I think in Canada, you know, it's great um, to be talking about planting trees. Um, but I think, I, I hope that many of the Jewish communities across the country was, will get a little bit more political and, and be thinking about what it is um, that is actually essentially uh, threatening our forests, mm -hmm. um, which is not only industrial logging still to make junk mail and paper, et cetera, but is, um, but is also uh, big developments uh, like the tar sands and our increased dependence uh, on, on, on fossil fuels in Quebec. I think the issues um, that are critical today um, that I hope Jewish communities will be looking at um, are issues of transportation. Mm -hmm. You were talking about your, her your Jewish heritage, and so do you think there is there's certainly a connection, or that that's been an influence for you in terms of your environmental work, uh, having a Jewish background, that that's, that's influenced you in, in becoming who you are now? I, I think it definitely has. You know, because engaging our community was such a part of growing up for me. You know, I was the president of the United Synagogue Youth. I was, you know, running and facilitating meetings by the time I was 12. I was taught to engage in the issues and volunteer on issues. And in fact, my first campaign was with my sisters. Um, my parents passed away uh, when I was quite young. We had all had uh, bat mitzvahs, and um, yet many mornings we couldn't say Kaddish for our parents, the mourners Kaddish, because you have to have a minion. And at the time, only men were counted in the minion. A certain number of men have to be present in order for you to say special prayers. And so we ran a campaign. We, we talked to the board of directors. We knocked on people's doors. We called to the Torah. We're allowed to have a bat mitzvah. Why aren't we being counted? And our synagogue became one of the first synagogues, uh, conservative synagogues in North America to count women in the minion. So that was Tsipora Berman talking about a couple of the she waged uh, in her lifetime. Most of them are environmental, but that one at her synagogue, I guess, was the beginning of her activist career. And uh, I want to thank her and Mark Brooks for doing the interview and also thank Basia Schechter. If she's in Montreal, go check her out tomorrow, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, if you're interested in being inspired to get more involved in the environment, I think Tsipora Berman's book is a good place to start. It's a memoir about her her life's work. It's called This Crazy Time. So check it out. And if you love world music and Ladino music and flamenco music, then you're going to love Yasmin Levy. She's coming to Montreal on February 9th and Shtetl has two pairs of tickets to give away. So go to the Shtetl website and find out how you can win tickets. It's shtetlmontreal.com and we're going to go out with uh, one of her songs called Si Veriash off of her uh, first album, Mano Suave. She is an incredible performer and hey, thanks for tuning in to Shtetl on the shortwave and have a wonderful, wonderful wonderful February.
Sentado a 